Leave it to Beaver. Starring Barbara Billingsley, Hugh Beaumont, Tony Dow, and Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. I don't know if you remember the show Leave It to Beaver, but uh, apparently in the late 50s and early 60s, mothers uh, cooked dinner and cleaned the house wearing a dress and high heels and a pearl necklace and they had their hair done. Um, but apparently teenagers in the 50s, you could wake them up and they would smile and say, good morning, father. Good morning, mother. Gee, what a swell day lies ahead of us. I have teenagers, and at least now, and when I was a teenager, we didn't wake up that way. But I loved Leave it to Beaver as a kid. I still love it. And when I used to work in the film industry, I worked in and around the Cleaver home at Universal Studios. It's just a few houses down from the old Munster's house as well. And one night, I was working on some movie. I don't remember what it was, but I drank so much water that I needed to use the restroom. And so I went into the Cleaver's home. I went into Beaver's home to relieve myself. And as a fan of Leave it to Beaver, you can imagine how surreal that moment was for me. I went to the bathroom in Beaver's home. Dream come true. That sounds weird, huh? Well, if you're familiar with the show, Leave it to Beaver, there are two boys, two brothers in the Cleaver household, Wally and Theodore. Theodore goes by the nickname Beaver. And Wally, the older brother, is always telling his younger brother, Beaver, that if he does or doesn't do something, then their dad is going to be mad. Wally usually says it this way, Gee, Beaver, if you don't clean up your side of the room, dad's going to clobber you. And it seems like a legitimate threat to Beaver. But if you know what their dad, Ward Cleaver, is like, you can't imagine Ward Cleaver ever clobbering one of his sons. Ward Cleaver is what every father should strive to be. Warm, gentle, kind, wise, patient, firm. Ward Cleaver would never clobber one of his sons. And yet, that's kind of how many people view God. They think he's just out to clobber people. But God is more like Ward Cleaver than some people may realize. He's warm, gentle, kind, wise, patient, and firm. He is, as we were just singing, he is a good, good father. How you view God and what you think about when you think of God is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. And the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. How you respond when you sin, how you respond when you mess up big time, reveals in that moment your view of God. When you sin, is your first reaction to run from God and hide like Adam and Eve did? That's just a heart informed by religion. Or when you sin, if your first reaction is to run to God, 
then that's a heart that has been informed by the gospel. If you mess up and your first thought is, God's going to kill me, he's going to clobber me, then you don't understand grace. But if you mess up and your first thought is, I need to call God, I need to talk to my dad, then you get it. You understand how your heavenly father works. You understand what union with Christ is all about. You understand why the word gospel really means good news. Religion is I messed up and my dad's going to kill me. And the gospel is I messed up. I need to call my dad. That's what Solomon is getting at in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. So turn there in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. We've been in this series in 1 Kings. And we've seen that Solomon has spent seven years building the temple where the nation of Israel could come and worship the Lord. It's been seven years in the making. And now, right in the middle of 1 Kings 8, they're in this dedication ceremony where they're dedicating the temple and we're in the middle of this prayer that Solomon is praying to the Lord. And in this prayer, Solomon, what we will learn about him is that Solomon knows the human heart. Solomon knows that haters going to hate and sinners going to sin. Solomon knows that everyone in Israel is a sinner. I mean, after all, that's the point of the temple that he is dedicating. The temple is the place where sinners could commune with God through substitutionary atonement, through offering and sacrificing animals. The temple was the place where they could hear once again that their sins were forgiven. And so they offer sacrifices at the temple because they are sinners. And because they are sinners, Solomon knows that they might really sin. I mean, like sin big time. Like sin so bad that they end up getting booted out of the promised land. Booted out of Israel. And that's exactly what eventually happened to the nation of Israel. And that's who the original audience of the books, 1st and 2nd Kings, that's who the original audience is. It's God's people, the nation of Israel, who were exiled to Babylon because of their sin, because they worshipped other gods. The covenant curses that came upon Israel culminated in being taken as slaves to Babylon. And so in this prayer that Solomon is praying, Solomon is going to pose seven situations to the Lord. And the gist of all of these seven situations that Solomon is praying about is that we are always in situations that are infected by and with sin. Or we are always in situations that have the potential to be infected by and with sin. Why? Because we're sinners, right? And because we are sinners, we always bring sin into whatever situation and whatever relationship we are in. That's just life. That's humanity 101. And Solomon took a humanity 101 class at the local community college, so he knows what happens anytime any sinners get together for any reason. We all have the ability to create and add to drama. One thing you have to love and appreciate about Solomon is that he's real in this passage. He's not optimistic about the human heart. 
Solomon is not optimistic about the human heart. He knows what potential the old Adam has in causing drama. Solomon knows that sinners going to sin. And so he prays with that truth in mind. So look in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So in this first scenario that Solomon is praying about, Solomon is asking the Lord to be present in sticky situations where it seems like right and wrong is hard to prove because there are no witnesses. In this case, a man swears up and down that he has not wronged his neighbor, but the neighbor disagrees. And so the man takes an oath and he swears on the Bible, if you will, that he did nothing wrong. But the other person, his neighbor, disagrees. So Solomon is asking the Lord to intervene and bring justice to this situation. If the man who took an oath is lying, then Solomon wants God to judge him and vindicate the offended party. Solomon realizes that even though he solved the case of the two prostitutes who were fighting over the baby back in chapter 3, do you remember that? Solomon knows there will be times when it will be impossible for him to discern who is right and who is wrong? And so he asks Yahweh to be the judge here. If you're new to grace, Yahweh is just God's covenant name in the Hebrew language. So if I say Yahweh, I'm talking about God, I'm talking about the Lord. And so Solomon asks Yahweh to judge between these two parties because he can't tell who's telling the truth and who's lying. And are there not times in our lives when the drama is so thick and the situation is so murky and sticky that we don't know who is right and who is wrong? If you have kids, you've experienced this, right? Each of them swear that they are right. I had the toy first. No, I had the toy first. Classic he said, she said situations. The good news of the gospel is that we serve the same God as Solomon and we can call on our Heavenly Father and ask Him to bring to light the truth of any situation. The next scenario that Solomon prays for is if Israel ever gets in the ring with their enemies and they get their tails whipped. Look at verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Solomon knows his Old Testament. He grew up hearing stories about how there were times when the nation of Israel was too big for its britches and they went to war, but they did not seek the Lord nor trust in Him. And so they came home with their tail between their legs. So Solomon prays that if that ever happens again and the nation of Israel acknowledges their stupidity in trusting in their weapons, trusting in their own strength, trusting in their own wisdom, he's asking that the Lord would be merciful and forgive their sins and restore them. It's as if Solomon has been reading our diaries, right? Why? Because how many times do we live in such a way that we are depending on our own gifts and depending on our own strength and depending on our own wisdom to do what we are called to do? We all do it all the time, right? We try to live in our own strength. 
live by our own wisdom. And the evidence of this, that we do this, is not that we exclaim, I am strong, I don't need you, Lord, sit down, Jesus, I got this one. Okay? You don't have to say that to prove that you attempt things in your own strength and in your own wisdom. All you have to do to prove that you try to do things in your own strength and with your own wisdom is simply to not pray. When we don't pray, when we don't acknowledge our weaknesses and that we are desperate for God, this is what we are actually saying. I am strong. I don't need you, Lord. Sit down, Jesus. I got this one. That's sobering, isn't it? And it's humbling. Old Testament scholar Alec Motier said, to abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. Now think about that. Let God's law expose your heart. If we aren't praying, if we aren't acknowledging our need of Jesus, our need of a Savior, if we aren't acknowledging how desperate we are, then really we have just embraced atheism. There's no wiggle room with this. It's true. If we aren't praying, calling out to God and saying, we need you, we're idiots, we need your wisdom, then we are living life as if there is no God. To abandon prayer is to live like an atheist. And that's what Solomon is praying about here. He's saying, if there comes a time when the nation of Israel thinks that they can hop in the ring with some ancient Near Eastern version of Hulk Hogan and not seek Yahweh's help and not seek his wisdom, and they leave the ring beat up from head to toe, and they've lost the championship belt, if you will, and then they come to their senses and they repent, Solomon is asking the Lord to be merciful to them, to forgive them. Solomon is asking the Lord to show mercy and not show up with a bag of I told you so's. Sinners need mercy, not I told you so's. Sinners who come to their senses need a God who welcomes them when they don't welcome that God into their life. Sinners need a merciful God after they have embraced atheism and quit praying. And sinners can find that God when they repent. They find that God welcomes them with open arms. Remember, religion is, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. And the gospel is, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Religion, atheistic religion, doesn't call on God for help. But sinners and disciples and Christians who want to leave behind their practical atheism, they can call on their Heavenly Father when they come to their senses and He hears. That means that if you haven't been praying that much lately, Jesus is not condemning you right now. He isn't shaming you right now. Jesus is not looking at you and saying, shame on you for not praying. That's not who Jesus is. He's simply wel welcoming you back right now. He's not shaming you. He's welcoming you back. He knows you've messed up. And he's ready to go at this relationship once again. And so Jesus says to you today, Come on home. Let's start over, shall we? Maybe you haven't been praying. Well, guess what? Jesus has been praying for you. You're on the prayer list of Jesus. Did you know that? 
Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You may not have been praying, but Jesus has been praying for you. You're on the prayer list, Christian. That's the gospel. And John Calvin said, Jesus Christ holds out his arms to receive us as often as the gospel is preached to us. Jesus welcomes you today, no matter how much you have failed or no matter how much you have failed to call on him. And so if you've been neglecting prayer, and who hasn't? Jesus isn't condemning you this morning. He isn't shaming you right now because of your lack of prayer. He's simply welcoming you back right now. And he's ready to go at this relationship once again. So he says to you today, come on home. Let's start over, shall we? You can get real with the real Jesus. You don't have to be like Eddie Haskell. Do you remember Eddie Haskell, Wally's friend from Leave it to Beaver? Eddie would always come over and ring the doorbell and Mrs. Cleaver would answer the door and he would say, good morning, Mrs. Cleaver. My, that's a very pretty dress you're wearing today. You don't have to be that way with Jesus. You don't have to say, good morning, Jesus. That's a swell sunrise you made this morning. You can be real with Jesus and talk to him. Tell him what's weighing you down and tell him what's troubling you. Eddie Haskell is what religion looks like. Well, since Solomon knows how bent toward practical atheism we all are, and since he knows the human heart so well, Solomon is going to pray about another scenario. He's going to ask God once again to be merciful should the nation of Israel prove their ignorance and go this route. Look at verse 35. He says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers." So the background to this ceremony is Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And in those passages, Yahweh, the Lord, detailed how he would bring covenant curses down upon the nation of Israel if they turned away from him and began worshiping other gods. And part of the curses that the Lord said he would bring down upon the nation are detailed here. There'd be no rain, there'd be a famine in the land, pestilence, Bugs, enemies besieging their cities, plagues, and sicknesses. And so the premise was simple. If the nation of Israel obeyed the Lord and walked in His ways, not perfectly, of course, but if they walked in His ways, they would experience His covenant blessings. He would send rain. He would protect them. But if they disobeyed, 
and they worshiped other gods, they would experience the Lord's covenant curses. And the reason God would bring all of these curses down upon the nation is because they had turned away from the Lord and they, would, they began worshiping other gods. But understand this, the goal of these covenant curses that the Lord would bring down upon the nation of Israel, the goal was restoration. The goal was not, I told you so, shame on you. The goal was to restore their relationship, their first love relationship with the Lord. The goal was to start over with God once again. The goal of these curses was to recapture the hearts of his people so that they would love and worship Yahweh exclusively. And the way the the Bible speaks of this is in Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And if the nation of Israel walked away from the Lord, then Yahweh would be faithful to discipline them. He disciplines us because he loves us. He is faithful to discipline his children. God made that clear to the nation of Israel. It wasn't tucked away in some endnote. You know, if you read a book, I hate endnotes. If you write a book, footnotes, please. The only person that likes endnotes are the devil. Endnotes, footnotes, people. God did not say, I'm going to come in and bring covenant curses upon you if you walk away from you. He didn't stick that in an endnote. He made it very clear to his people. He told them up front. And so Yahweh's faithfulness to his promises is a two-edged sword. He is both faithful in grace and faithful in judgment. Yahweh is faithful to bring both covenant blessings and covenant judgments upon his people. And Solomon doesn't mind souring this exciting temple dedication ceremony by bringing this fact up about the Lord if it means his people get recalibrated and they get a wake-up call for their sin-prone hearts. Remember, it took seven years to build. They're finally celebrating the completion of the temple. It's a party. It's a celebration. And Solomon doesn't mind souring this celebration by bringing up the fact that the Lord would discipline his children if they walk away. Solomon doesn't mind bringing it up if it recaptures their hearts and they get a wake-up call for their sin-prone hearts. We know now in the flow of redemption history that Jesus lived and died on the cross for our sins and God judged his son Jesus at the cross for us. So God doesn't bring judgments down upon his people anymore because he brought his judgment, his holy judgment, his righteous judgment, righteous anger down upon his own son on the cross. So Christian, your judgment day was at the cross 2,000 years ago. That's when you were judged for your sin. Jesus stood in your place and took the judgment that you deserve. But God does discipline his children that he loves. But he doesn't bring punishment down upon us because he punished Jesus. But he does discipline us to capture our hearts once again. But please understand that for Solomon and company, these covenant curses were evidence of God's love for his people. The Lord told them he would discipline them. And he disciplines them because he loves them. And Solomon knows that if there's a famine and there's no rain, and sickness spreads throughout the nation, and if they can't sleep tight because the bed bugs bite, because God has sent all these bugs throughout, 
And then they come to their senses and they repent and turn, change their minds, and they come back to the Lord. Then Solomon is asking the Lord to be merciful to them and to forgive them. Let me point out something else that's in verse 39 where Solomon says this. And forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Understand this. You don't know what is happening inside of a person's heart. And I don't know what is happening inside of a person's heart. Only Jesus does. Now, we like to think that we know what is happening inside of a person's heart, right? We make assumptions all the time, don't we? We like to say things like, he did that because, or she did that because this, or he must hate me because, or she doesn't love God because. But Solomon is telling us here that we don't really know what is happening inside someone's heart. We like to think we do, don't we? We all struggle with this. We all make assumptions about other people, about why they do things or why they don't do things, why they said things. We make assumptions like this all the time. And Solomon here is telling us we really don't know what is happening inside someone's heart. Only Jesus does. Now, we may venture a guess, but it's just a guess. And I wouldn't recommend putting any stock in that guess either. Only the Lord knows. And yet we all make assumptions all the time, don't we? It's like the great theologian Arthur Fonzarelli said, assumptions are the termites of relationships. If we begin making assumptions about people that we have a relationship with, they did this because of that. They said this because they didn't do this because of that. They, and we make those assumptions, those assumptions will become termites that eat away at the very relationships that we have with people. Here's the reality, Grace. We all do it all the time, don't we? We want to be a church that says, we're going to give the benefit of the doubt. We're not going to make assumptions and accuse people of things that may or may not be true. Because that will then eat away and erode at the very relationship. We want to be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt and assumes that people do things for right and godly reasons. And not make accusations or assumptions that then eat away at the very heart of our church family. So, assumptions, when you begin feeling that, say, Jesus, help me not to do that because I don't know their heart, Jesus, only you do. The reality is that we don't even know our own hearts, do we? You don't even know what's going on in the deep recesses of your own heart. There are unevangelized continents in your heart that need to hear the gospel that you don't even know about unless the Spirit of God illumines your mind and opens your eyes as to what's really happening inside of you. Now, other people can see it, right? Other people can see what's going on in your heart, and sometimes pride just blinds us to our own sin. Let's be a church family that says, you know what? I started to assume something. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It'll make your life a lot easier. If you just walk around and think, everybody loves me. <laughs> this is great. I'm just assuming that everybody loves me. And we just move on that way. Only Jesus knows what is going on in someone's heart. And Jesus knows if repentance is sincere. Jesus knows if someone is truly sorrowful. Jesus can spot true repentance a mile away. 
And what is repentance? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, is very helpful here. Question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is an awareness of one's sin and an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ that he doesn't give me what I really deserve. Where a sinner then hates their sin and they turn from it unto God with a desire to walk in new obedience. And so Solomon is praying here that if this happens with the nation of Israel, that God would be merciful and forgive them. So there's affliction of heart and an open hand to receive from the Lord in repentance. Repentance is just starting over with Jesus again. Just starting over again. But understand, it's not the intensity of our repentance that cleanses us. The blood of Jesus washes away our sin, not our repentance. Do we need to repent? Of course we do. But it's not the intensity of it. It's not the length of it. Sometimes we think, well, I blew it big time. I just sinned that sin that I told the Lord I would never do again, and I just did it again. Maybe if I wait three hours, he'll cool down, and I can kind of come back, and then I can confess and repent. It's not the intensity, it's not the length of the prayer, it's not i got to pray for an hour to truly show that I'm sorrowful for that sin. It's not the length of the prayer, not the intensity of the prayer that cleanses you and cleanses me of our sins. It's the blood of Jesus. And so we don't look inward for that kind of hope. We always look out. We look out to Christ by faith and we trust in what he has done to save us and to forgive us. We don't look inward. We look out to him. It's not subjective. It's objective truth, objective reality that has happened outside of us. And we look to that and say, I believe that. I believe he lived and died and God raised him from the dead for me. And I'm staking my life on that truth and I'm not looking inward for hope. So Solomon is asking the Lord to be merciful. If the nation of Israel messes up, And instead of running from God, they turn to God, they repent, they change their mind, and they call on God, then he's asking and he's telling them that forgiveness is available. And not just for the nation of Israel. God is the God of the nations, not just the nation of Israel. And so Solomon moves on to his next two scenarios in his prayer. Number one, what if some foreigner, some non-Jew, hears about Yahweh, hears about the Lord, and they show up and they want to know more? And number two, what if the nation of Israel is off in battle in some foreign country and they pray to the Lord? Look at verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. 
So in the middle of this prayer for the nation of Israel, Solomon briefly switches gears from the possible and very likely sin situations that Israel would face that he's been describing, and he switches gears to address the foreigner, the non-Jew who comes across the border to worship Yahweh. It's almost as if the good news of the forgiveness of sins is too good to keep to Israel. And so Solomon interrupts praying for the nation of Israel and he moves to focus on the nations of the world. Solomon assumes that other nations will begin hearing how wonderful Yahweh is, how merciful he is, how kind he is, how he forgives sinners and they can have a relationship with him. And they will, Solomon assumes that they will hear this and want to know more, and they will come. And that very thing happens. We'll see it in 1 Kings chapter 10 when the queen of Sheba shows up and says, I've been hearing all these things about you, Solomon, and about your God. Tell me more. And Solomon is praying, when they do, when foreigners come, when they've heard your reputation, Lord, Solomon asks the Lord to let missions, evangelism take off. Notice the purpose clause there in verse 43. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon doesn't want the temple that he's dedicating here in 1 Kings chapter 8. He doesn't want the temple to be like the best kept secret of the ancient Near East. He wants Yahweh's reputation to go public. He wants people to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants people to hear of the Lord's kindness to sinners. He wants people to hear that Yahweh is good and warm and gentle and kind and wise and patient and firm. And so Solomon is asking Yahweh to welcome the prayers of any foreigner who comes to put their trust in the Lord. And Solomon's asking the Lord to welcome the prayers of his people when they're off in battle. So in both situations, Solomon is asking the Lord to be welcoming, to be who he said he would be, to be the listening God, to be the God who says, come on home, let's start over, shall we? Solomon was discipled by his father, King David. He knows who Yahweh is. He knows Yahweh's character. And he even spells out really bad, even when he spells out really bad situations, like he's doing here, he knows that Yahweh is available. In fact, Solomon is praying with hope here. Even though he's describing situations that are heavily infected with sin. I mean, think about that. Solomon is praying with hope about future scenarios that are deeply infected with sin. And in the last scenario, Solomon will paint the worst case situation. And then he will call on the Lord to even be merciful to his people then. I mean, one thing you have to love and appreciate about Solomon is that he's real. He is not optimistic about the human heart. He knows what potential the old Adam has in causing drama. And yet, it's not all gloom and doom either, is it? Solomon knows that you can talk about how sinful we all are and yet still have hope. I mean, think about that. You can talk about how sinful we are and yet still have hope. In fact, Solomon will paint a worst case scenario in the next section that we're going to look at. 
What if Israel sins so bad that Yahweh finally sends them away in exile? And this, of course, actually did happen to the nation of Israel. Happened to the original audience of 1 Kings. So they would be listening intently to this section of Solomon's prayer because that's exactly what happened to them. They turned away from the Lord and he sent them away in exile to Babylon. And yet even then, there is hope. If they repent, Yahweh would hear and forgive. Look at verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying... We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Solomon now paints the worst case scenario picture here. Israel turns away from the Lord to worship other gods, and they are then carted off as slaves to Babylon, to exile. Solomon paints a worst-case scenario, and even Bob Ross's happy little trees cannot help this painting. They need mercy. And Solomon boldly asks for it because he knows that Yahweh promised to bring them home if they repented. Back in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 30, the Lord made promises to bring his people home from exile if they repented, if they came to their senses. And this worst case scenario actually did happen many years after Solomon. In fact, he even kind of kicked the process off. We'll see that in chapter 11. The original audience of 1 Kings had this worst case scenario come true. So imagine how they are hearing Solomon's prayer as the book of 1 Kings is being read to them. It's injecting them with hope. They're saying to one another, Yahweh He'll start over again with us. Did you hear it? He will start over again with us. We can go home. It's a reminder that our sins never get the last word in our lives. God's promises always get the last word in our lives. There's always hope. No matter how far we have run from God, no matter how bad we have messed up, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me repeat that because there's someone here who has really messed up their life and you need some hope this morning desperately. There's always hope. No matter how far we have each run from God, no matter how bad we have messed up our lives, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Ralph Davis says, The sins of God's people will not maroon them in a hopeless cul-de-sac of guilt. But even in their sins, there is a future and a hope because the God of the Bible brings his severity upon his people in order to lead them back into his mercy. That doesn't mean that we make light of sin. There are still consequences to sin, right? We see that in these verses. There's consequences to their actions. As Paul Tripp says, grace never calls what's wrong right. Grace is a way of dealing with wrong. Grace forgives and grace transforms. So what Solomon is praying for here in these verses is grace to forgive and grace to transform. Grace to wipe away sin and grace to enable and empower sinners to deal with the consequences of their sin. Grace never calls what's wrong right. Grace is God's way of dealing with wrong. And that's what Solomon is praying for here. So in this long prayer that we've been looking at, Solomon is really just teaching us about religion and the gospel. Religion is, I messed up, my dad's going to kill me. And the gospel is, I messed up, I need to call my dad right now. Religion thinks, my dad is going to clobber me. The gospel makes us respond, I messed up, I need to call my dad right away, I need him, he'll help me. Let me ask you this morning, do you have a religious view of God or do you have a gospel-informed view of God? Is your instinct to run from God or run to Him? Is your instinct to call Him on the phone right away or drag your feet in fear of going home because you fear He's going to clobber you? Most preaching today Sounds like this. Gee whiz, why'd you go and do that? Dad's going to clobber you. We don't like that kind of preaching here at Grace. Listen, if you feel like you can't or shouldn't run to Jesus because you are ashamed, then that means you need to run to Jesus. That means that the devil's out doing his thing to keep you away from Jesus. Always run to Jesus. Always Run to Jesus. Let me say it again. Always run to Jesus. You are always welcome, Christian. He doesn't want you to run away from him, but to run to him. And Jesus will never stiff arm you or be so busy on his iPhone that he's not listening or paying attention to you. He is attentive to your cries for mercy. He is attentive to your cry to not get what you really do deserve. Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Nothing thrills Jesus more than to see one of his elect children come running to him. So whenever you feel like you can't or shouldn't run to Jesus because you feel unworthy or dirty, that means you need to run to him. When you think, I can't call my dad, that's a sign that you need to. When you think, I can't go home now, that's a sign that you need to. Are you weighed down with troubles today? Run to him. Are you encumbered by some sin? Run to him. Yes, run to him even if you are covered with the filth and funk of sin. As Kelly Capick said, run from him? That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. The last thing that Jesus wants right now is for you to run from him. 
Run to him. Run to him covered with all the filth and junk of this world and the filth and funk of your sin and let him wash you and cleanse you with his blood. That's what he wants more than anything. To run to him is to understand the gospel. To call him up when you mess up is to understand the gospel. The gospel gives hope. It's like calling your dad when you messed up, knowing that he's going to help you. When you spiritually wreck your dad's car, religion says, how could you? Look what you did to my car. How dare you? But the first thing the gospel says when you spiritually wreck your dad's car is, are you okay? Come here. And you feel the warm embrace of your father. Steve Brown said, God designed the gospel to be astonishing. God designed grace to be amazing. And God designed the Christian faith to be totally bewildering. If you make it less so, you change it into something that it isn't. Not only that, you rob it of its power. The gospel is this. You're forgiven, past, present, and future. You're loved, and you can't be unloved no matter what you do. And you are His. Now, doesn't that good news make you want to run to God? Jesus is saying to you today, come on home. Let's start over, shall we? Will you? Have you? Have you turned to Jesus? Turn to Him today. Turn away from living for you and your petty kingdom, living in rebellion against God, and trust in what Jesus has done for you. He lived for you. He died for you. In your place on the cross, He will, if you will, He got clobbered for you. He bore the penalty of your sin on the cross. God poured His righteous anger out upon His Son for you, for your sin. And God raised Him from the dead. And so He says to you today, Come on home. Let's start over, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you that the invitation is there to come home, to start over, no matter what mess we've made of our lives, no matter how bad we've wrecked our life. Your main concern is for who we are and how we're doing. You are a good, good father, kind, warm, gentle, firm, patient. Help us to believe that today. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that you clobbered your son on the cross for our sin. We look out to that moment and that truth and we believe it. Help us to start over again. In Jesus' name, amen.